This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lynn from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as all of you know, my co-host is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. We are very excited to bring you a special interview today with Rebecca Skinner, Associate Secretary of Australia's Department of Defence. As you'll hear, Alan is going to take the lead and introduce Rebecca and do most of the questioning, though I will chime in here and there too. I'll also get our thank yous out of the way now. As always, our thanks go to Charlie Henschel for audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, but also to Martin Pierce for some technical assistance in getting us set up today. And with that, I'll pass the microphone over to Alan to get us started. Well, thanks very much, uh, Darren. It's a great pleasure for me to be here in the ANU's uh, Crawford School audio cupboard with one of the most senior women working on Australia's national security, Rebecca Skinner. Rebecca holds the position of Associate Secretary, and we'll talk a bit about what that means in the Department of Defence. Before her current appointment, she was Deputy Secretary in the department responsible for the Defence Intelligence Agencies, Strategic International and Industry Policy, and something called Contestability. This followed a stint in a job with a simple, but when you think about it, a truly daunting title, Deputy Secretary People where she was responsible, among other things, for personnel policy for both the ADF and civilians, service delivery, recruitment and family programs. Now, there's much more, of course, to Rebecca's bio than that, dating right back to when she joined Defence in 1993 as a graduate in what was then the Defence Signals Directorate and is now ASD. But the point I want to make here is just to emphasise what a very big, diverse and challenging department Defence is, 65,000 staff, and how much of it Rebecca has worked on. And in addition to that, she's also had stints outside in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet and as Liaison Officer in the US National Security Agency. Now, Rebecca, before I get on to your current job, I'm interested in what brought you to this area of defence and national security in the first place. You've got a science degree and postgraduate diplomas, including in education, And you spent the first four years of your um, professional life as a school teacher. So what changed? How did you end up here? Well, thanks, Alan, and thanks, Darren, for having me on your podcast today. It's a real delight to come and have a talk to you. Well, I think you start out often with your first career because you do it because that's what you thought you always wanted to do. And I was pretty fortunate going through school to really love maths and science. And so I um, sort of got myself into that sort of field and actually really enjoyed the opportunity to to teach people. So I ended up in my first career for, for four or so years being a maths and science teacher. But sometimes you sort of, as you grow up, you examine the circumstances around you. And at the time I was living in Melbourne, where I was a teacher, um, interest rates were, you know, 
for people around me were 17%. There was teachers around me who had dependent children and holes in their clothes because they couldn't afford to feed their families with those sorts of interest rates and high unemployment in Victoria. So I sort of thought, what else? What could else could I do? And I'd always been interested in things that go on in the world. Um, I had some technical background. And in those days, often you ended up in an intelligence agency because someone you knew worked there. So in some ways, uh, I took a path that others have taken and I um, went into the same business that um, my father was in, in the Australian Signals Directorate or Defence Signals Directorate as it was then. And I started my career in the public service, in defence and in national security through a sort of technical role in the intelligence um, agency, which sort of led me from one thing to another uh, and just this amazing set of experiences that I have managed to enjoy um, over 25 or more years now, um, including postings overseas, trips to all sorts of countries, engaging in amazing policy issues, technical issues, uh, and just generally having a great opportunity to help make the world a bit of a better place and help the Department of Defence um, in many ways be um, a highly effective organisation. And so sort of I've taken the journey and uh, stepped out onto a lily pad and just followed the next lily pad as I've made my way across whatever the river is. And I don't think I'm at the other side yet, so we'll see how many more lily pads there are to go. Yeah, now we'll, we'll stop at this lily pad, uh, which is your current job of Associate uh, Secretary. Now, as Associate Secretary, you're the second most senior civilian in the department, alongside Greg Moriarty, the Secretary. When I think of the job, I guess uh, I think of it as a sort of Chief Operating Officer for the Defence Department. Is, is that right? And if so, how do you set priorities among all the responsibilities you've got, or do you not bother to set it priorities because you find they get set for you when you wake up every morning? So talk, talk us through what it is that you do. Well, thanks, Alan. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of both. Firstly, I'm the deputy to the secretary. So that means whenever he's away, I do his job. Uh, and for that means I try to stay across everything that's going on in the department, but also um, across the sort of high-level policy, national security, geostrategic issues that, um, that confront Australia and, and how defence works with those. So I try to stay across all of that. Um, the second role is is sort of that chief operating officer, but it's it's more than that in a large department. It's the integrator of all of the enabling services or the enabling activities that help to ensure that you can deliver ADF capability. So for me, that's all of our people functions, ICT, finance, estate, infrastructure, but also our governance, our reform and our control frameworks through things like fraud and audit. So what that can mean is that how do you do the priorities? We have a, you know, I get to sort of operate the defence business plan through the Enterprise Business Committee, which is the chair, the committee that I chair. And that's how we're trying to drive the delivery of the organisation's outcomes by bringing them together. So we do have a set of high level strategic priorities that we focus on. But of course, one of the other things you can do where I just say is that I'm the chief wrangler. So when something goes bump in the night, I end up with the opportunity to wrangle across the organisation using the role in order to bring everybody together to solve sometimes a big problem, 
security breach or something like that, sometimes a little problem, a great big gap in our musical instruments policy or something that's led to a purchase that we didn't really uh, didn't really want. And you end up uh, wrangling the little things and the big things while you're trying to keep the, the strategic priorities on the right path. Yeah, and things go bump in the night very often in the Department of Defence. So I guess there are um, there are a lot of uh, early mornings and uh, and broken nights. Yeah, I like I like to say that uh, out there, most people are trying to do the right thing every day. But broadly, there is a hundred and hundred or so thousand people. We're in all sorts of places all over the world, all over Australia. Somebody thinking they're doing the right things, probably not, and that sometimes can keep you up at night. Now, one of the the unusual things about defence in a structural sense is that you operate as what's called a diarchy with Greg Moriarty and the Chief of the Defence Force, General Angus Campbell, jointly responsible for the management of the defence enterprise, supported by you, and I guess your counterpart is the Vice Chief, uh, Admiral David uh, Johnson. Now, um, in global terms, that's quite an unusual approach, I think. We've all seen external commentary hinting that the public servants don't really understand the business of war fighting and are somehow a drag on defence preparedness. Now, I have to say that that's never been my impression. And over the years that I've been looking at it at, uh, at the senior levels anyway, the relationship has always seemed to me to work well. How do ADF civilian relationships look from the broad perspective that you see them from? Well, and it, it, it does depend on where you look. Um, the diarchy is a bit of an interesting beast. I'm a big fan, par- partly because when I'm acting as the secretary, the higher up you are in an organisation, the more lonely it can be as the leader. I love the defence structure. You have a built-in buddy. So no matter what happens on a bad day, I've got a buddy. It's usually the vice chief if the CDF's away. So, and the secretary always has the CDF. So you have a, it's a buddy system. So that's pretty, pretty good. Some of the challenges can be more down in the system where the civilian workforce is more seen as the very much supporting, uh, not even seen as enabling. And, and that there's some history to that, which is improving. Uh, and certainly we see as more middle ranking officers come into Canberra, uh, they get a stronger sense of purpose about why you do have a civilian and military workforce and why we work together and why we work together to deliver, deliver the outcomes. So I, I think um, it can depend on your perspective and it can depend on the experiences that some military, our military colleagues have had with some of the civilian workforce. But, but in the broad, uh, works very well, is an ever-increasing understanding of how, why the two parts of the system work together. Um, and more and more we have civilians that are deployed with the ADF, either in core functions like intelligence, but also in finance and other sort of enabling roles in the theatre. And, and they give a very, that gives a sort of, brings into sharp relief uh, the importance of, of how we work together in those sorts of places. So all up, it's not a bad story, I think. Rebecca, if I can jump in, uh, but I want to take the conversation back to things going bump in the night and to wrangling in particular, but I want to do so through the lens of, of pop culture because when I was preparing uh, for this interview, the, the the scene that came to mind was from my favourite TV show of all time, which is The West Wing, and I'm sure many of our listeners uh, know this show as well as I do. And the scene I'm thinking of is when Donna Moss, who was played by Janelle Maloney, 
is being critical of military spending to Christian Slater, who was a uniformed officer who played a role for a few episodes. And she queries why the military would need to spend $400 on an ashtray. And Slater responds by quite dramatically breaking the ashtray in front of her and demonstrating that it has been specifically designed to break into three pieces rather than shattering like glass, which is important if you're on a submarine that has just been hit with a torpedo. And he makes the comment, and I quote, we lead a slightly different life out there and it costs a little more money, end quote. And for me, it was a wonderful quote because it was able to capture, I think, a lot of complex ideas in just a single sentence. Do you have any reaction uh, to that to that story? I must say my first reaction was to assure the listeners we have no ashtrays on the submarines. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but the, but the point made uh, very, uh, very plainly is right. It is a different world out there where we have to operate. And you can't take simple off-the-shelf things and expect them to operate in the harsh conditions with which we um, want to, you know, if we ever had to fight and win a war. Um, you just take a humble laptop and, you know, you think about your laptop or, or the one you've given your kids to go to school and they slide it off the desk and it hits the floor. It doesn't cope. But if you take that laptop and you have to um, uh, pop it in the back of a military vehicle, drive it over terrible terrain, set it all up in 50 degree heat in a tent with no air conditioning, um, you can start to see that the impossibility of operating with just normal equipment uh, and being an effective and uh, force with a capability edge just doesn't exist. So things do cost more, um, high-end technology, high-end protection. We want the best for our people and we want our people to be safe. And safety also costs uh, costs money in military equipment. We want if they... Uh, the Bushmaster is a terrific example. Beautiful, fabulous um, equipment built in Australia. We didn't lose a soldier um, uh, in that, despite the number of them that were destroyed, but the cost of the plating and things like that that um, protected them were in excess of what you would expect on a Toyota Corolla, and, and rightly so. So it does cost more out there, but it doesn't mean that it always has to cost more. And some of the things where we've been doing some reform in commodities was is things along the lines of uh, we could we could put a military specification on a pencil or a ruler and then we've we had inbuilt processes where people would go and have those things made to military specifications. Now you don't need to do that. So we want to focus on mil specs for the things that really matter and the, not the things that don't. You mentioned musical instruments yeah. uh, <laughs> earlier. <laughs> Do you want to talk to us about musical instruments? Yeah, well, musical instruments are incredibly important. It's the, part, the Australian Defence Force is part of Australia's fabric and society. So we have a range of military bands. I think we have 14 uh, bands. Um, Army has 11, Navy has two, and the Air Force has one band. Um, but... Uh, they have to have musical instruments. Musical instruments last a long time. You want to buy good musical instruments. But our business processes fell down a little bit when we went a bit overboard on one particular uh, flute uh, that really was just being purchased to meet the budget for the band, of the particular band. Um, and, of course, it went into the public domain through Oz Tender and 
what happens to us is people love to make try to make a bit of a mess of us um, having made, purchased these things. But, you know, what it did do was it pointed out we actually had uh, the 11, 11 bands were supported by one of our uh, capability acquisition sustainment offices to buy musical instruments. We were able to put that policy on all the bands and now we have one way of purchasing musical instruments and that uh, that meets the intent uh, for our, all of our bands without us being not, not, not having too high a quality instrument or too low a quality instrument. Um, it's important to have good equipment for our for our people but you know, within reason. So knowledge of the price of flutes is something that has... Uh... Occasionally I end up as the policy expert on a particular matter for about three days and then it passes. So for a while there I was the expert on uh, instrument policy. Because it's a cross-portfolio, sometimes I'll be the one that uh, has to uh, answer those uh, those questions and uh, from time to time uh, I'll be experts in all sorts of other things that we purchase I think that actually leads well into my next question because even talking about flutes and musical instruments, you, things can get very complicated very quickly, uh, and there is a you know a detailed policy discussion behind it. And you know when 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 I read about the Defence Department in, you know, in the press as a sort of an irregular civilian, it's often done in the context of Senate estimates hearings and stories like this, but also a policy discussion about defence reform. Um, and it might just be me, but it feels like the department is in a never-ending discussion about reform, both with a conversation with itself and with its political masters and also with the Australian community. Are my perceptions accurate? I mean, do you think the department is more focused on reform than other large organisations, whether in the public or private sectors? And if so, why? And does this sort of relate to the ability to communicate question, you know, on issues like flutes and musical instruments? Or does it impede how you can talk about those issues in the public domain? Look, I think as a um, whether we're more or less focused on reform, um, I don't really think that we are necessarily. But um, for a large, complex organisation in an Australian context, which you know gets around thirty-five billion dollars worth of money mm. from the taxpayer to spend on capability, personnel, and sustainment, um, how we spend that money is really important and it must be done in an efficient and effective way to the very best of our abilities. It, mm. it is different to um, m other organisations in the sense that we do, we're one of the only public sector organisations that do large scale procurements and large projects of things that are often capability edge and new. So when mm. they go wrong, they can go wrong with a big cost and a low tolerance for, for what, what preceded the, the problem with a particular program or project. So our reform journey started back in the 70s with Tang. It's worth remembering the department was five departments and there was five secretaries and five ministers. And we've moved and continually reform since that those Tang reforms of the 70s um, to the point where the first principles review actually removed the statutory nature of the service chiefs to provide specialist military advice to the government of the day so that the CDF now is the advisor on military advice 
and uh, command, can commands the ADF and the service chiefs are responsible for raising, training and sustaining the military. Um, so that continues to drive us on a reform journey. We've, we, As a large organisation, you're vulnerable to uh, duplicated processes and things like that. And while the first principles review took us a huge way, my view is we've still got uh, more reform. We, it's the little reforms. It's finding that you're operating three musical instrument policies instead of one <laughs> way of doing something. Mm. So my my thing as a associate secretary is to find every possible way to say that there's one way of doing business around here. Mm. You buy a flute like that. You you procure um, your ICT this way. Uh, only those people can do that. You've got to get authority from here so that we don't mm. um, build a thatched up system that we then continually trying to unthatch. So uh, reform is there and all good organisations continue to reform. Uh, for us, um, it's about trying to generate that reform ourselves rather than wait for the next review. Mm. Thanks, Rebecca. Can, can we talk about gender? This is an unusual period in Australian national security policy. Both the Defence Minister and the Foreign Minister are women and uh, Senator Reynolds is the second woman to hold the job. There seem to be a couple of ways of looking at these developments. Uh, the first is to emphasise the change and to argue, as, uh, as some have, that women, as a result of their different experiences, have different ways of understanding and operating in the world and that gender diversity matters in, this, uh, in these jobs. And the other approach is to normalise the experience, wondering why anyone would make a fuss about it. Last year, Parliament voted to remove defence's exemption from the Sexual Discrimination Act, uh, and your minister, um, who's also a former brigadier in the Army Reserve, uh, told the Senate at the time, yes, she said, uh, men and women are different, and hallelujah for that. And she added that throughout all of my career, I've had to fight to show that difference is not less, to demonstrate the fact that as women, we can do things as well as any man. Now, I, I don't want to ask a generic question here, but a specific one. In, in what ways has your own career and thinking been shaped by your gender or hasn't it really at all? Look, um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question. It does depend on your journey. I, I, my first part of my career uh, was in the Defence Signals Directorate where the first, they were the first uh, part of Defence to ever have a senior executive service woman. So I, I went, spent the first 10 or 11 years um, going about my job, uh, you know, career and enjoying my roles, um, completely sort of unaware, if you like, that I was a woman versus a man, because the just had didn't seem to have ever come up. On my second day, when I'd moved across to the Defence Intelligence Organisation, due to their makeup, well, they'd only ever had one woman parachuted in for five minutes and off they'd gone again. Um, the first thing one of the senior men said was, oh, thank God you're here. We've doubled the number of senior women. And I was only a director at that time. Uh, the other uh, woman was uh, is the fabulous uh, Celia Perkins, but um, who's now a head of strategic policy. But it was at that moment I thought, oh, oh, I didn't realise I was a woman in the sense <laughs> of my career. Mm. And uh, so Defence, of course, went then through some very difficult times um, around cultural change. But uh, what that really did was educate 
both myself, uh, the work that Elizabeth, Elizabeth Broderick, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, did with the department helped really educate both myself and other colleagues around what system we lived in and the way in which the system was making decisions that actually excluded some types of people, uh, whether they were uh, in the defence context, it was women, but it was also other minority groups that weren't the sort of stereotypical bronzed Aussie type of view. That was the sort of prevailing leadership uh, model. So I had got to a couple of points in my career where I'd felt that I'd really had hit the glass ceiling and I was doing the female thing of, okay, well, what more? What more do I have to do? Which box do I have to tick uh, to get promoted to the next level? And I was getting sort of quite frustrated about that. And, you know, you can even see that you then don't function as well in your organisation if you're looking for why it is that's what's wrong with you. And then I came across the learnings around system and I was able to step back and go, oh, well, it's not me at all. It's the system that behaves in a certain way and intervening in a system is difficult and how do you get the system to approach um, things in a different way? So I was always grateful that the department had in helped educate senior leaders about the system and that enabled an opportunity to have a discussion about it. And I have been in forums where I'd seen um, the predominantly, because that's just the statistics of the department, were about to make a decision about whether a woman could or couldn't get a job or get an opportunity, they were considering whether um, their family circumstance was going to work out. And I was able to intervene and say, hang on a second, how about you ask the person if they, um, if they can or they can't, if they, they do or don't want that opportunity, um, and then uh, let them say that their personal circumstances doesn't um, doesn't uh, it doesn't support it because we tend to do two things. We one we we are being nice and we try to accommodate we accommodate imagined issues for women sometimes, but we then actually equally put men under pressure to take roles when perhaps they're they're not allowed to actually have that same voice. So I, I think um, I have uh, found there's been barriers and hurdles. There's been some frustrations, but overall we've got there. And I still think that the role here is to continue to intervene and to to point out to get a system that operates for everyone equally. Good. Thanks, Rebecca. Let's um, turn outwards a bit now. I don't think there's been a single edition of this podcast in which uh, Darren and I haven't noted in one form or another the uh, changes and challenges of the times we're living in. So I want to talk about the strategic environment that defence is uh, operating in. The Singapore Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung told the Shangri-La Dialogue last Friday that our world is at a turning point, globalisation is under siege, tensions between the US and China are growing. Like everyone else, we in Singapore are anxious. We wonder what the future holds and how countries can collectively find a way forward to maintain peace and prosperity in the world. So, Rebecca, from your position as a senior policy advisor in defence, what are the main features that you see as you look out on this disrupted world? Well, I think I share everyone's view that it's a bit disrupted. And the thing is, how do you navigate? Nobody knows what the answer is. Nobody knows what the next disruption is going to be. Only that we know it is 
changed faster than we expected. We know that uh, technology is playing a role in that. We know that politics in various countries is playing a role. And how do you navigate Australia's national interests in that environment? The best, you know, the my uh, only way or my best way when we're confronted with a difficult challenge is to um, get clever people in a room and talk about what all those ideas are. Keep a sharp focus on what is in Australia's national interest. For us, that's got to be our close relationships in our region are continuing to have that strong relationship with our main security partner and continue to drive a strong and prosperous economy for Australia. Otherwise, you can't afford the lifestyle that we got and how we maintain our values, but you also can't afford the level of military capability that you might require in order to um, provide the deterrence as part of your national security strategy. Um, so all of those things in equal measure are in competition, but are also really important. And how we engage particularly in our region to build uh, relationships with others, have new partners, and ultimately uh, solve our problems and put our challenges to ourselves um, in ways that um, challenge us and try to have contestability and novel ideas on what are the sorts of things we need to do. And you've heard me talk before, Alan, but one of my big uh, you know, things is how you collaborate. None of these challenges will be solved by a particular department um, or by a particular minister. Uh, they'll be solved through a multifaceted approach over time and uh, how everyone behaves and works together gives you the best return on that possible outcome than staying in our current, you know, sort of stovepipes and arrangements. Yeah, look, thanks. Well, I'll come back to that before the end of the uh, podcast. But Darren, I wanted, you had a couple of uh, questions too. Yeah, so I guess I wanted to know how you think about the link between sort of big questions of, of, of geopolitics and grand strategy and what that implies for Australia's defence posture and how that connects then to the enabling services that you oversee as well. Like we sort of, you know, in on university campuses and policy think tanks, we mostly focus on these big picture questions and, and you don't see nearly as much analysis on what this actually means for all the other parts of defence that have to support and in, enable you know, the projection and the use of our capabilities. So do you have any reflections on, on and how you can think about those big picture questions and then link that to what that might mean on a day-to-day -day operational basis? Yeah, well, Defence, of course, has the Defence White Paper and has a really long history of having a very strong strategy framework. So it goes through cycles of, of examining the environment, changing, you know, seeing what settings, policy settings need to be adjusted. What does that mean in terms of capability? How do you change the capability uh, makeup going forward? And we do, uh, you know, that in big huge cycles. So most of the public would see a sort of five-year-ish type of cycle mm. around a defence white paper. But every year in defence, we're doing an annual and quarterly cycle of all of those sorts of things. And, and some of that gets right down to this preparedness, which is how do you ensure that the military can um, operate where it needs to operate uh, against the risks that are there for it to, um, uh, to the things that might need to participate in. 
And one of the challenges in the enabling uh, space can be that uh, many of the people and the culture of the enabling space is to deliver the enabling service and keeping that very harsh, sort of very stark, I should say, link between we're here for ADF capability um, is being one of the sort of driving parts of my um, service delivery ethos with the enabling services that I've run both in people group and and now and you know in the same way as we it's a bit different out there well it's a bit different in an enabling service as well we might need to be putting on a pile of you know, breakfasts at four o'clock in the morning because somebody mm. is going to deploy. Uh, this is not about how opening the cafe for a coffee at seven in the morning and having an early shift. So we've got to be focused through both our service delivery, but also through the contracting methods we use for a lot of our services to make sure that they are focused on a capability outcome. And that is a sort of continual drumbeat um, as we uh, both drive the reform in some of those areas, but also in the contracting templates and methodologies we use to engage others to help us. So it is really important. Uh, and it's interesting as you outsource different parts of your workforce in some some ways that, um, that you maintain that capability uh, focus. I, I saw in your biography that you are a graduate member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. What is one lesson a large government bureaucracies could do a better job of learning from the private sector? And also at the reverse, you know, do companies in the 21st century have anything that they can learn from large bureaucracies? And I guess a related question, you know, what are some of the skills that are common to both the best CEOs and COOs in the private sector uh, with uh, secretaries and associate secretaries in the, in, in the government? Well, I, look, I think um, the one thing... It's a piece of work that I'm sort of doing now in the defence organisation, but I do think the private sector organisations have a much stronger focus on customer service and customer service culture and mm. service delivery culture than public sector agencies. Now, I've not worked, of course, I think we have a very strong culture of that in our uh uh, human services and service delivery. But, you know, when you look at the way in which the banks have reformed and those sorts of areas or even even the shop fronts for government sometimes have been really much more outwardly focused on customer and tailoring services to customers. I, I effectively run a massive service delivery for mm. ADF people um, through from their families and their homes uh, through to their postings and um, in ICT. So that's one thing I think we can continue to learn from, um, from the from the private sector. It's the nicest thing I've heard anyone say about banks for a long time. I know, I was thinking whether that was a political example, but, uh, you know, uh, well, how they've treated some customers might be uh, to question, but they're, um, they're, the way in which I felt they've modernised their online services and things like that is something that I think from a public sector organisation's point of view, we've taken mm. too long and certainly defence is too slow at. I mean, I, I reflect that if I had to go into my branch now for my bank to do any banking, I'd be irritated about that. Whereas we still continue in defence to have mostly the, the service member have to integrate all the various features of a posting, mm. for example. So we're working through that. The, the flip side in, in my view is I, I genuinely think um, public sector organisations have got strong people policy and development programs. And I don't think the private sector uh, does that as well. They might do it at the executive levels, but 
Um, when I see industry that we work with, uh, they're very, all too ready to take a highly trained person from the public sector. And I genuinely think that the public sector in the broad has been the pioneers for uh, more inclusive um, and flex some of the flexible work and things like that. So I think we've got a bit, um, mm. they can still learn from us on that. Um, it depends on the organisation you're working in. And, you know, I think CEOs and COOs, um, features that make really successful ones, I think, are, you know, the ability to have a clear narrative, um, genuinely like working with people and be highly focused on outcomes. And if you've got all of those mm. uh, things going for you, um, choose good people around you uh, and, um and not have too much ego and get uh, <laughs> get terrific, um, clever, be the dumbest person in the room if you're the CEO. And I reckon you're on a really good, um, you're on, you know, you're on your way. Great. Now, Rebecca, finally, I, I want to go back to that issue you talked about before about uh, the way in which the national security community, the departments and intelligence and uh, security agencies, which together advise the government, uh, should be working together. I, I heard you speak recently to a group of your colleagues from around uh, Canberra, and it'd be great if you could say something more about that. But in particular, I'm interested in the this issue of contestability that you've raised uh, a couple of times. I, you know, spent much of my uh, professional life in the uh, in the Canberra in, environment. And in my experience, a Canberra consensus arises very, very quickly around any given subject. And uh, getting contestability into the system is hard work. So talk us through all that. Look, firstly, that, you know, leadership requires the ability to manage a little bit of conflict. And it doesn't have to be warfare, but just has to be conflict. So contesting ideas um, and creating a safe environment for that to come out. Defence has inbuilt um, into its system, particularly around its capability development, um, the idea of contestability. So there is a division. I, I ran it at, at one point. Uh, they work for me now. Uh, that's whole job is to be smart, clever, uh, knowledgeable lay people and to look at large capability proposals and ask good questions about whether that is really an achievable schedule. Um, is that capability really uh, uh, required in this time frame? Um, how does that spending sp um, financial spread of money work with the integrated investment program. Uh, th that's an interesting new capability, but we have one over here. Uh, we have built it in, but we've built it in around a set of behaviours and given it a set of authorities. So it works very collaboratively, but it's, um, people understand that you have to pay attention to what they're suggesting. And then at our major committees, we will actually chair them in such a way that the chair will allow the capability manager to introduce their item. Contestability will go next and we'll talk about what they think is good about it, what they think could be worked on, where the issues are that they see, um, and then others will have a say, including our colleagues from Department of Finance and Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So that's how we built in the contestability. But it has taken time and we've had some other uh, views of contestability that was a little bit more negative than that. But um, bottom line, if you can get 
safe debate um, into an issue and get all the voices heard, then you'll get a better outcome. So I like to try to conduct things with somebody I always find, who's the person who's going to say no in the room on any issue and get them to speak at some point. And they'll tell you all the things that could possibly go wrong. And that helps to bring out things that you can treat. So it's about creating that sort of environment where everybody has a say, nobody has to be right, nobody has to be wrong, and every idea has some merit. Um, But it does take good leadership to create that environment. um, And it does take some um, uh, good behaviours on the participants as well. So it's always a bit of a work in progress. And and that's true of the um, way the the, uh, we should approach whole of government as well as uh, just uh, within the Department of uh, Defence. Yes, and look, I think one of the issues that I've observed as we've dealt with some of the security challenges around us is that there's a, you know, we can fall into the trap of having the security community have a conversation about a policy issue. Uh, and in fact, I used to be on this, you know, forum where I'd go and have this policy conversation. And then there'd be the economic and finance experts would be having a similar conversation um, around uh the same policy issue, but the conversations weren't being had together. So you can't genuinely come up with a strong view of your national interest on a policy matter if you don't have your security interests and your economic interests in the same room. Because at some point, those things come into conflict. They need to be traded off in some way or discussed and debated in some way. But you'll never get to a good policy outcome if you continue to have your conversations in two different lanes. Well, Rebecca, many thanks for that. It was terrific to have you in here uh, talking to us and throwing uh, light on uh, on what for many people is a sort of uh, rather obscure um, uh, issue. Thanks very much for your time and uh, over to you, Darren. Yes, thank you very much, Rebecca. It was great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Darren, for having me. Thank you.